0: Well, this week, I was so incredibly saddened by the story in the news about the New York City emergency room doctor who committed suicide, and she was not the only one. Apparently, she had gotten the virus and went back to work too soon, and eventually, the heartache of what she was experiencing and the pressure was just too much for her. She was described by many people as a deeply committed Christian, and her loss is devastating to many people. As I read the story, uh, read it actually a couple times, I was struck by her pain, the pain of her family, and so many in our country right now. And as we have said before, if that's you, it is important that you reach out. It is important that you ask for help. We will not think less of you for reaching out. We will actually think more of you. You see, it's easy to read or hear things and become uh, completely detached from the pain. You know how it goes. You're watching a television program, and you you see kids who need some money or pets or something like that, and before you know it, you flick the channel, you're watching something else, and you've already forgotten what's going on. But to really understand this Old Testament book of Habakkuk, you can't do that. Habakkuk's generation had experienced real revival under King Josiah, and people had been coming back to the Lord. But that died when King Josiah died. In verses one of two of this, cha- verses two and four of this chapter, we saw that the culture had turned wicked. And violent again. And last week God told uh, the prophet that the ruthless Babylonians were coming to discipline them. Now as we come into verse 12, we're not sure how much time has passed. But this week we get the feeling that the time of the Babylonians coming is very close. Or that time has already arrived. In 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the Babylonians defeated the world superpower, Egyptians, and took control of Jerusalem. Remember what I said last week, they were in the path. And and the times in Jerusalem were quite awful. So what happened was the people of Jerusalem, they never liked it when there were foreign invaders in their land. And so they rebelled. And eight years later, 597 B.C., the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and began the first of what would be several uh, deportations of people back to Babylon. Today we will see that at some point in time, the back-and-forth dialogue that we're witnessing between God and the prophet continues. And the title of our message today is why is the world like this God? Why is the world like this God? Habakkuk is desperately holding on to his faith as he is wrestling with something that a lot of us are going to experience in our lives, and that's this. He is wrestling with what we would call apparent conflicting theological reality. Sometimes people say to you, well, the Bible has a lot of Uh, contradictions, and so you might want to say to them, are you talking about apparent conflicting theological realities? You'll sound really, really smart, and they'll probably say, oh boy, I don't know, I want to talk to this guy. But the way that Habakkuk does it is very instructive. What he does is he holds on to and states certain certainties about God, and then he asks the questions in light of those things. So he he says, this is what I know about you, God. And because this is what I know about you, God, these are the questions that I have. Now, let's be honest. Most people do it the opposite way. They let the difficulties define or obscure the truth about God. In other words, most people let problems, let difficulties, let pain Let heartache define God. So because I'm experiencing this, God must be like that. Habakkuk's wrestling with God. I think the only way I could really put it is it's honest, it's blunt, and it's raw. You might even say that it is borderline irreverent and disrespectful. But here's the truth, loved ones. Sometimes the strongest and most mature followers of Jesus Christ find themselves wrestling with God over these things. And God seems to be okay with it. I'm going to be honest with you. I had one of those times in my life Friday night. I was just really upset about something with God that I just didn't get. And so, if you will, I dumped on him. (laughs) I unloaded on him. And to be honest with you, when it was over, I didn't feel less loved. And I felt like he was okay with it. Now, maybe I sinned in the process. I don't know. I didn't use any bad words. But it was honest, it was blunt, it was raw. It's important to capture Habakkuk's emotion in this conversation. It's like he's saying to God, are you kidding me? Or, or, hey, I understand what you told me last time. The Babylonians are going to come invade us. What's wrong with this picture? Yet the Lord is so gracious that he's willing to walk his people through expressions of pain he's willing to walk his people through, walk side by side with us in the frustrations we experience in our journey of faith. Now, if you're taking notes today, there's three things we want to break up this passage into. And the first one is Habakkuk teaches us to start with something that's important to remember. It's important to remember what we know is true about the Lord important to remember what we know is true about the Lord. Don't let the problems cloud that out. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting? Some of your verses say eternity, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. The answer is yes. But being reassured of that in worship, he says, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment, the Babylonians, to execute God's judgment upon his people, O Rock. You have marked them, Babylonians, for correction. Another version says you've ordained them for this. You have destined them to punish us. Now, whenever you read the scriptures, it's something that's very, very important. I know you get frustrated a lot of times by the fact that you can't understand what you're reading, but it's important principle to realize in Bible reading that the original audience was meant to understand the message. Now, you and I are meant to understand it, too. just takes us a little bit more work. That being said, it's quite possible we're at 605 B.C., and the Babylonian crisis, or even past that, the Babylonian crisis may already be upon them, and the people of God, Do know this by what was written by the prophets of old that God was with his people. Now, the prophets of old honestly should be the pastors of today. People called to teach the word of God and the ways of God and connect them Or we say, bear them upon the times in which we live. So take the word of God, the principles, what was actually going on at the time, and to connect them to the days in which they live. So it's not a history lesson per se, except God lives out of time. He's from everlasting, so it's always a history lesson because God is, as we'll see, very, very stable. He is the rock. Now, why is that important? Let me tell you why that's important that That a pastor takes the time to understand what was going on then, teaching what was going on then, and taking it and putting it into our own day. Why is that important? Because things are always changing. Back then, it was the Babylonians. Do you remember what it was a year ago? It was mass shootings. People seem to have forgotten about that, right? And now it is coronavirus. Certainly today, to some extent, all followers of Jesus should be aware of our culture, world affairs, and politics, and view them all through the lens of the Word of God. You say all of us? Well, in Numbers chapter 11, Joshua had got all, he was all in a knot. He was Moses' right hand man. And uh, the other, there were some other men. Uh, who were serving the Lord in truth. Moses said this. It says, Numbers eleven twenty nine. 29. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Like, are you upset for me? And then look what he says. Oh. No, that's not what he says. In the Bible, when you see, oh, it's like, oh. Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets. And that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. But here, Habakkuk, who the Lord's spirit is on him, he's a prophet. He turns to God and he says, What I know about you and what's happening now to us, they don't connect. In my brain, they just, it just doesn't compute. He says, Are you not from everlasting we might say, are, are you not the covenant God who promised to always be with his people? Notice what he says. You are my God. You are my Holy One. This is something, and it, it's subtle, but this is something I really love about God. He allows us to possess him. What do I mean by that? We're allowed to call him my God, my Holy One. We're actually allowed to grab a hold of him and say, I possess him. Sometimes you'll hear me talk about my Pam, and I always call her my Pam. Sometimes people come to our church and they will be, you know, somewhere around the church and they'll introduce herself, someone introduce themselves, and she'll say, hi, I'm Pam. And they'll go, are you my Pam? And she'll go, no, I'm Jim's Pam. <laughs> so, so that's the way, I, because what happened, when we got married, she gave herself to me, and I gave myself to her. I know, you don't have to tell me. She, I definitely got the better end of that deal. I understand. God is very gracious to me. But on the cross, Jesus gave himself for us and to us, So that's why we can say he is my Savior. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we give ourselves to him. So we can possess him. He possesses us and we possess him. In fact, that's part of the problem that the the Jews are in right now. God is very possessive. He didn't like their idolatry. He didn't like them going off committing adultery with other gods. So Habakkuk says that you are my holy one. What does that mean? That means that God is perfectly and morally pure. That that he is completely separate from evil. So, So the question in light of God being holy becomes this. How can you let these savages come in and attack us? Yet the same thing happened over 600 years later when the Holy One, Jesus Christ, died on the cross at the hands of evil men. It's interesting, the book of Acts chapter 4 verse 27 and 28 says this, For truly against your holy servant, Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. So, Jews and Gentiles. So, if everybody say, oh, you know, these people killed Jesus. Everybody's indicted. Verse 28. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So, God determined beforehand that Jesus would die on the cross. And so, that was his plan that the Holy One would die at the hands of evil men. Now it's interesting, because of the holiness of God and the cross of Christ, the true people of God can join Habakkuk by saying this, we shall not die. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and promised to do the same for all who put their trust in him we shall not die. Habakkuk can say this 600 years before Jesus. How much more can we, because of the cross and resurrection, those who put their trust in Jesus, be confident that no matter what, we shall not die? You say, well, plenty of Christians died, but the movement continues. The people of God continues. And individual people, who put their trust in Jesus, will not die. That's why the Bible says we just go to sleep and then we wake up in the presence of God. Jesus told us, Matthew 10, 28, he said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, don't spend your whole life being afraid of people but make sure you have the fear of god. Psalm 118:6 the psalmist writes the lord is on my side i will not fear what can man do to me. Now i don't think that habakkuk is is really doubting here as much as i think he's trying to understand god's use of wicked babylon to do his bidding. Why is he doing it this way? The same way the apostles were probably thinking when Jesus died on the cross. And his heartbreaking question is coming out of a deep heart of faith and love for God. You know that because he calls God, in addition to being his God and the Holy One, he calls God the rock. That's very important. Yes, a crisis is upon them, but God is a stable rock and his promises will not Change. I think of that a lot when I walk around here. You know, we live in a beautiful area with these beautiful, you know, big hills and lots of rock, especially if you live in rock away. <laughs> and so, and you see these big cliffs. And I, I like to think about the fact that people, long, long time ago, were looking at the same thing that I'm looking at. That we share that. Things change. But that stays the same, and that's the way God is. He is a stable rock. His promises will not change, which is what makes me think that verse 12 is a cry of hope. And this is a deep question we all have to ask ourselves in a crisis. Can you say, can I say that he's my God, that he's my holy one? That I view him as the stable rock. Now, loved ones, I am not, not, not asking you that question to make you feel guilty. Rather, I am asking you that to help fill your heart with hope in the midst of pressure. Will you, will I, in the midst of all of our pain, assimilate to the culture? Join into the rest of the things that everybody else is doing, or will we settle our hearts and settle our souls in the Lord in the stable rock? Once again, this helps Habakkuk make sense of the crisis because my God is holy, because my God is stable, we shall not die. Now, why is that important? Because the Babylonians kill everything in their earthly path. And that is what the prophet is wrestling with. So in uncertainty, he clings to what is certain. The Lord is in control. The people of God, yes, they will be disciplined by God. But they will not be destroyed. Job said this, Job 517, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. And if you know the story of Job, I mean that guy, he lost it all. People say, Oh, I'm, I'm like Job. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> he lost everything. Proverbs 3:12. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Some versions say disciplines, just as a father, the son, in whom he delights. That is why I Also say here in verse 12, this is a cry of hope. Grounded in God, Habakkuk is starting to accept the circumstances. That doesn't mean he necessarily likes it, but he sees God's hand in it. He realizes that discipline, God's discipline, comes from a heart of love. And as it often does in the word of God, and this is very interesting... A lot of times it comes from another country. A lot of times it comes from an enemy. Once again, studying the word of God uh, comes in handy for the prophet because the past history of God's faithfulness in good times and bad fuels his hope for the future. So Habakkuk is developing an eternal perspective Even though he is suffering for the sins of the people around him. He's a man of God. But the people of his culture are not. And he's suffering, if you will, for their sins. But that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he suffered for the sins of other people. So who would ever put their trust in him could have their sins forgiven. So if you will, the holy one died for the unholy. The rock, the stable one, died for the unstable. Well, that brings us to number two. It's important to remember uh, what we don't understand about the situation. Very important to remember that. So I don't understand it. Well, you understand stuff about God. Remember that. But there's also, that doesn't mean, oh, okay, well, now I get it. Not necessarily. Let's read verse 13 and 14, verse 13 twice, just 13. He says, you are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? So what happens here in verse 13, I, to go, I want to go through it slowly now, is Habakkuk makes two statements followed by two questions. Let's look at the two statements. You are of pure eyes than to behold evil. Another version says your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Now eyes can stand for the totality of who you are. You're, you're too pure for this stuff. And the verse goes on, cannot look on wickedness. You thought, you said, I thought God, God can do anything. We'll get back to that in a second. Another version says, you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So those are the two statements. You are pure eye, pure, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look upon wickedness. Now, there's two questions. Why do you look? Another version says, idly, on those who deal treacherously. Another version says, why do, you treacher- why do you tolerate the treacherous? And hold your tongue. So those are two questions. Why do you look? Why do you hold your tongue? Another version says, why are you silent? We might say, why are you just sitting by watching? Do something about this. And hold your tongue when the wicked devours, another version says, swallows up a person more righteous than he, or another version says, those more righteous than himself. Now, Habakkuk is continuing to ground himself in the Lord, in his purity, in his holiness. But that continues to raise questions about the world. In other words, he says it in a different way. God, I know the way you are. Yet, everything that is going on, or the way you do things, is completely confusing us. Completely confusing me. He says, you're totally pure. Now, It said, after that, you cannot look on wickedness. You said, I thought God can do anything. Well, this is a basic thing we have to understand about God, is that God won't act outside of who he is. That's what we mean by he cannot do it. It's not in his character to do certain things, so he's not going to act outside of who he is. But, But Habakkuk, being very observant, again, about God and about his culture, about God, about God and about the world, says, why is it like this? I mean, what's going on here? It's like we're hearing in the news lately a lot. The cure can't be worse than the disease. And he's saying, man, the Babylonians, you're kidding me. They're way worse than we are. In other words, at times it seems this is what he's telling them. And sometimes we think this, but maybe we're afraid to say this. And that's why I'm glad for guys like this in the Bible who say it for us. He's saying to God, God, there seems to me to be a massive disconnect between who you are and our world. You are, you are the rock. You are completely stable. But this place is so broken, and and you're the holy one, and this world, and the Babylonians are the perfect example, is so incredibly cruel. But this may be a big part of his problem. He's looking at what is happening to him and his people now. And I know that this is a big part of my problem and your problem, too. You see, friends, when we only focus on the short term, we almost always miss what God is doing in the long term. Can I say that again? We are Americans. Everything is quick. Like some of you are like, Ah, Amazon, used to be two days, not anymore. You know, ah, UPS, FedEx, the mail, too slow now. What's going on with these guys? Okay? Because we're used to having everything quick. Hit our phone, done. Hit your computer, done. Big thing now is if anything takes longer than one or two steps, I'm out. I'm not going to do it. But when we focus on the short term, We almost always miss what God is doing in the long term. Short term, Habakkuk, God is going to use wicked and cruel people to disciple a more righteous people. We might say God is going to use cruel people to disciple and discipline decent people. Long term, God's people are going to change. They're going to go to Babylon. But when they come back, the idols will be gone. There'll be other problems, but that mixing that they were doing of of the idols of the other nations with Yahweh, that stuff is going to be gone. So God's people will change. That may actually explain some things about coronavirus. I'm not making anything, any you know, claims about this is God's judgment or anything like that, but I am saying this, that God will use everything that comes our way to conform us into the image of Christ, to make his children more like Jesus, to make us look more like our Heavenly Father. So what can we expect to happen during this time? We saw it a lot in the recession that was, you know, 2007, 2008, False converts will fall away. And the true people of God will change for the better. And new people will come into the kingdom as they realize that they thought that they were in control all along. And now they realize, I'm not in control of anything. I better bow the knee to the one who is. So how does this change begin to happen. In the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, in America. How does that happen? Well if you're not normally with us. Uh, the congregation does allow me. I try to keep it to once every four to six weeks. To get up on a soapbox for a couple minutes. So I'm going to get up on a soapbox for a couple minutes. Where is that thing? I can't, can't see that. I think. That what we may see, and part of me actually hopes that we will see this. That the all about me, never tell me I'm a sinner so I can do whatever I want, fluff rah-rah church will die. I'm not going to say that again. I can't say that again. There was too much. And true worship will return. And the true, passionate, without excuse, teaching of the Word of God will return to our pulpits. Pastor Neal sang one of my favorite songs, right the last song before we began the study today. It's a song called Call to Worship. He says, and and the lyrics go, I'm climbing up the mountain of the Lord to the holy place. Every step is grace. I know a lot of people think God is a vending machine that should give us whatever we want. The reality is, the Bible says that he is a consuming fire and it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God does not exist for our benefit. We have that completely backwards. We exist for his. And so God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. How did it get that way? How did we get so far off? I think people mistook God's grace and his patience for his tolerance. That because God didn't do anything about certain things that were going on in the church, that he was okay with it. They took his look and his silence. God's watching, God's silent about it. They took it as acceptance. God is okay. He's forgiven our sins. We can live however we want. By the way, loved ones, that is not worship. That is not worship. Bible students, you know this. A hundred years earlier than we are, where we are in Habakkuk is that God sent the Assyrians to warn the people of Jerusalem. They came to the city. God torched them with one angel. But what was that? A hundred years earlier, that was a warning shot across the bow of the boat. But a hundred years go by, and they don't take the warning. And now the Babylonian atomic bomb is coming, or it is already there. And the temple worship will be gone. It's going to be destroyed, the temple, until God's people can get it right. You say, well, the temple was destroyed by the the Babylonians. I got to tell you, I agree and I disagree. Yes, the physical temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, but spiritually, it was destroyed earlier by the people of God. You see, it had become going through the motions religion and living like God didn't even exist. That's what destroyed it. That's what's destroying churches everywhere. When people live like God doesn't exist, when they're going through the motions of religion, what needs to return? True worship, true repentance. Essentially this They needed to love God again. And when you love someone, you live a certain way towards them, not perfectly. But you don't become some person like, well, they got to forgive me, you know. Habakkuk's problem is our problem. He can only see what he can see of God's response. He can only see the Babylonians. He can't see the goal of what God is trying to do. You see, he's like us. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. And when crisis happens, we begin to wonder these things like he is. Are you really in control, God? Are you really all-powerful, God? Do you really care, God? Habakkuk is blind to what God is doing. And in many ways, so are we. Now suppose God decides to do that here in the United States of America. Suppose he decides to send a foreign invader to warn the church. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the possibility that maybe that invader is here now? Now, we could point out, and we could say, yes, Lord, we've sort of made church about us. We, we've been a very immoral group of people in the church. We, we've been unfaithful. And, and we understand that we've been praying for revival, and it didn't come because judgment starts in the house of the Lord, the scripture says. We we didn't even really want to get our own house in order. But then, praise the Lord, we survive. But then what happens if the unbelievers come along and shut us down? Because a lot of them want to. Would we then, like Habakkuk, cop an attitude that we're better than them? Would we do that? I think we might, some of us anyway. So I'm gonna get off the soapbox, but I'm gonna ask all of you to please join me in praying that this season is a warning shot and not the invasion. Please, for the sake of our children and our grandchildren, should the Lord not return in generations to come. Now, verse 14 through 17 are somewhat confusing, unless you know that fishing was big business in Babylon. And to them, remember we said last week how powerful they were? To them, war was as easy as going fishing. Catching people was as easy as going fishing. Verse 14, he says, Why do you make men like fish of the sea? <laughs> fish are not too smart. Maybe that's part of it. <laughs> but why, why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? Why do you make people who like fish who have no ruler, no leader over them? And uh, Habakkuk's kind of going like, why? why did you do this, God? Why did you make us like this? Aren't you supposed to be our leader? Yes, but they forgot. And now the Babylonians, while they were doing their wicked and violent stuff in Judah and in Jerusalem, the Babylonians, remember we said last week, they were rising up in power. And now they've become so powerful, they present what we now know today as a global crisis. And to them, the people they want to conquer are like helpless fish in a tank, swimming in circles all day, waiting to be caught. And Habakkuk says, why God? Maybe he's even saying, why do you make us like this? Why did you make us like this? Why did you make us so weak? Why did you make us so helpless? Why did you make us so spineless that we'll follow the crowd just to look good? Or so addiction prone? Why did you make us so we just do what's right in our own minds and we don't think about you? Why did you make us like this? Verse verse, ver, verse, 15, Habakkuk tells us how the Babylonians make war. He says they take up all of them. All of what? All of the fish. All of the people that they're hunting down. With a hook. They were known. They stole it from the Assyrians of putting a hook in people's nose or in their lip. They catch them in their net, and they gather them in their dragnet. Now, what, what in the world is dragnet? What in the world is a dragnet? Well, dragnet was a, this massive, massive net that would have sinkers on the bottom and would have floats on the top. And they would put them across a place where the fish would be going out and they would hit that net and they would sort of just hey how you doing how you doing hanging out with each other and then they would take it and they would wrap it together and they would yank all the fish in now i grew up on the water and a lot of times when we didn't when we were little kids we used to do it for fun when we were older we did it for bait you know what it's like you take a towel and you put it in the water and the minnows come over the towel and then watch sh- Each kid grabs the other side of it, and they pull it together, and they pull it up. And what do they have? A whole bunch of minnows, helpless little fish who fell into the trap. So these are symbols of their military power. He said, therefore, they rejoice and are glad. So what are they doing? They're capturing people, and they're rejoicing, and they're glad. That's what the people of God are supposed to do. That's a way we honor God. Boy, do I sure pray, when the Lord allows us to come back to church, notice I said the Lord, to come back to church, that our worship services, that would be what they would be about. That they would be about rejoicing and gladness. But now these people are powerless, and their culture is becoming more ungodly and Habakkuk seems to be saying to the Lord, what are you doing? I know this is not the world that you want. Verse 16, therefore they sacrifice to their net. So what are they doing? They're worshiping, having worshiping services using their nets. And they burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous. Another version says he lives in luxury and their food plentiful, what are they doing? They are worshiping what made them rich. They are worshiping their prosperity and their success. Wow, how little has changed in 2,600 years. We were made to worship something. If you don't believe me, take a teenage girl to a Justin Bieber show, (laughs) okay? We were made to worship something. And people will worship something. And for them it was prosperity and success. Verse 17. Shall they therefore empty their net so they take the people out and they just throw them aside? They're done with them. Shall they just shall they therefore. Empty their net and continue to slay. Some versions say kill and destroy nations without pity. Another version says without mercy. Habakkuk's like, listen, I get that we need to be judged, but by these guys? Lord, how long will you let this go on? How long will you put up with them? So here in verse 17, the prophet asks, How long will the wicked Babylonians' reign of terror last, especially over the people of God? He's like, God, we're your people. Did you forget that? We're your people. And the answer to the question, you know how I said in the bottom third in taking your notes, you might want to write something? This may be one of them. Perhaps you've already written, you know, if we only look at the short term, we're going to miss what God's doing in the long term. The answer to the question of how long will this reign of terror last over God's people is that God will do and wait however long it takes to bring his people back to him. God will do, and God will wait however long it takes to bring his people back to him. That raises another soul-searching question for all of us, not to make us feel guilty, but to make us look in deeply. Will these times that we are in right now of the testing of our faith destroy it and embitter us, or will it create a deeper And more personal faith in us. Habakkuk's challenge is our challenge. In my struggle with God's world, will I run from God? Or will I run to God in the midst of what I don't know of what's going on? That takes us to number three. It's important to remember what we must do until we know more. What we must do until we know more. I'm going to have to go into chapter two just for one verse, but we'll come back to it when we study chapter two. He says, I will stand my watch... And I will set myself on the rampart. What's a rampart? That's that's a lookout tower. Maybe that was his job. We don't know. And watch to see. The idea is I will be on the lookout what he, the Lord, will say to me. And what I will answer when I am corrected. In other words, he says, I'm going to watch and listen for what I'm going to say how I should reply to God about what my issue is with Him. Loved ones, now is the time for the people of God to be on the lookout for what the Lord is doing and what the Lord wants to do. And because He is sovereign, because He is in control, it is still a time to rejoice. And be glad. I'm not neglecting the mourning that some of us are going through. I'm not neglecting the sadness. But we can still fuel our souls with rejoicing and gladness. Habakkuk is teaching us, friends, that we can ask God. And God will listen. But we may have to wait for the answer. Or we may not like the answer we get. So what does he do? He's totally frustrated. He says, I'm going to get away from life. I'm going to go up into the tower. I'm going to hide somewhere. And I'm going to get alone with God. A great opportunity that many of us have right now. His question is, why is the world like this God? Yet, in his wisdom, Habakkuk asks God to answer the question. He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't define God's world by the problems he sees. He says to God, I'm confused and I need you to sort this out for me. You see, he knows that the only thing that he can trust right now is the word of the Lord. He can't trust his own thinking. A lot of us have to remember right now, we can't trust our own thinking. Why? Because we're too upset. We're too panicked. We're too emotional. Don't you make the worst decisions in the world when you're too emotional? So while he waits, Habakkuk will worship. And though his worship and waiting on the Lord might not bring clarity to what is going on, it will bring him some measure of comfort and some measure of calm. And this is something we have to repeat over and over and over again. See, Habakkuk was so confused at the injustice of wicked people punishing less wicked people. But God is going to let him know that he will deal with Babylon after he disciplines his own people, after he deals with his own people. But again, friend, that is the gospel. That through the injustice of the cross, God dealt with the sins of his people first. We are forgiven. And then he sends us out to war. You see, the roles are reversed. He sends us out as our ruler, he is our ruler, he is our king. He sends us out to be fishers of men. The Babylonians were fishers of men to destroy them. But we are sent out as fishers of men who are followers of Jesus. We are sent out to be fishers of men. The Babylonians, the world system captures people and it said what? In verse 17, they empty their net. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes along to capture your heart. Why? To fill his net, not to empty his net. Today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus wants to catch you. Or you might even say he wants to offer you the opportunity to hop in the net yourself. To hop into the kingdom of God. So the choice is, do you want Jesus, the Savior, to deal with your sins on the cross now? Or do you want Jesus, the judge, to deal with your sins when he returns? And the opportunity for forgiveness and to go to heaven will be too late Yes, we live in a wicked and violent world. There's a lot of great stuff in our world, but there's a lot of really bad stuff. So wicked and violent can our world be at times, so much so that they were even allowed to kill the Son of God on the cross. And that's not easy to see. It's not easy to see why Jesus had to suffer so much on the cross for our sins. But now we wait for him. And all those who turn to him and put their trust in him, we shall not die. No matter what happens, we shall not die We never will because Jesus died for us. And we will rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead and has promised to do the same, to raise you from the dead to eternal life in heaven, if you'll simply turn from your ways and put your trust in him. Well, let's pray.